I'm Scott McGowan, and this is Point Blank, where we close in on the ideas and stories that shape PLNU. Point Blank is sponsored by the PLNU Associated Student Body. So if you are a current student, the show is brought to you by you. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. This command likely sounds familiar to you. This particular telling comes from Exodus 31, but there are a dozen or so similar Sabbath commands throughout Torah. And you probably feel like, yeah, we do this on Sunday when we go to church for an hour and a half. We recognize it, but we hardly take it seriously. Maybe it feels outdated, a whole day from doing nothing. It's from an ancient time when society struggled every day just to keep food on the table and needed a reminder or an excuse to take a break so that in their efforts to survive, they didn't accidentally kill themselves with exhaustion. It's a decent theory. I mean, rest days are a theme across ancient cultures. Babylon and Persia had similar rest laws for their officials. So did the Romans. Ancient Greece was a little different in that they only took time off for festival days, but there were over 100 festival days every year, so that was actually a pretty good deal. The communal rest tradition goes beyond Western civilization, too. China's Han Dynasty made it mandatory for state officials to take every sixth day off. Also, they were required to bathe on that day, which seems like a good move. Indian Buddhist traditions also include regular rest routines, which predate most Western religions. The shared narrative here is that an agrarian society that rests together survives longer. Well, it makes sense then that the end of the Sabbath era largely coincided with the Industrial Revolution. As humans suddenly left farms for factories and cities, we didn't need collective agrarian rhythms to generate an entwined relationship with the land anymore. We had things to do and stuff to make. As manufacturing grew in the Western world, so too did the sense that we could make and do things better and better. How else are you going to beat that competition? How else are you going to win? In the early 20th century, the efficiency movement produced the new standard rhythms for the industrial world, which carried over into America's more office and service-oriented modern workplaces. It's the eight-hour, five-day work week. Well, that sounds pretty good compared to working the fields from sunup to sundown with one day off out of seven, right? Well, perhaps, but the work has changed too and the expectations. The average human no longer has the same connection and ownership of their vocation. In the name of efficiency and easier conditions, we've traded our own drive to survive for the timekeeping, bean-counting, email-obsessed, mission-focused, jargon-spouting, bosses, bosses, boss. We aren't working fields alongside our kin that will bear our sustained fruit in due season according to our care. We're largely sitting sedentary and alone, grasping at abstract outcomes through virtual machines. We get some human interactions, but it's with coworkers and mediated by the tensions of office politics. And don't get me wrong, I'm not interested in romanticizing the past. Human history has included a vast range of experiences and complexities, most of which were challenging ways we can't even begin to understand today. All I'm trying to highlight is that at some point, civilization made a new bargain that traded a survival ideal for an efficiency ideal. Meaningful rhythms of toil for consumerism and physical comfort. And we are perhaps just now learning that reduced physical burdens have been traded for increased mental and emotional burdens. Maybe that's why we increasingly crave escape. Here to talk to us today about the value of Sabbath and how it can pull us away from escapist tendencies that commodify our attention is Reverend Jared Callahan. 
Jared is a PLNU alum, but he's also a national Emmy-nominated filmmaker whose work has been released through PBS, The New York Times, GQ, The Atlantic, Sundance, Tribeca, 250-plus other film festivals worldwide. He had a New York Times op-doc, Saltwater Baptism, which featured a couple of PLNU students, and it was nominated alongside Lady Gaga for a 2018 Webby Award. He also made uh, his feature documentary debut in 2016, Janie Makes a Play. It's about a nine-year-old woman who writes and directs original community theater productions for her small town. He was one of Atlanta's Film Society's filmmakers in residence, where he made The Driver's Red, which played in over 100 festivals, won 43 awards, and is qualif- and qualified for the 2009 Academy Award in two categories. Uh, he recently produced a short documentary, experimental documentary, Mr. Somebody, which was accepted to try back in 2020 and premieres there this June. This June. And film was actually Jared's second career. Before all that, Jared worked in youth ministry for 17 years, including 11 at First Church of the Nazarene right here on the corner of our campus. He graduated PLNU in 2005. His degree was in media communications with a minor in youth ministry. And then he got a master's of divinity, concentrating in spiritual formation from Northwest Nazarene University. Now he lives and works at Heirloom East Bay, an intentional Christian community and farm church near Oakland, California. He is the founder of People People Media Foundation, which launches this summer to help diverse artists make make art within community, focusing on hosting artists in residence stays. He also is the director of programming at a local indie movie theater. I'm sure we will talk about how a filmmaker and pastor became a farmer and how all those things have led him to caring a lot about technology, media, what we consume, and what we produce. Jared, wow, that's a lot. Uh, Thanks for being here. Let's get into this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Yeah, there's so much there. I think when we chatted, uh, we thought we could probably do about four or five hours worth of podcast just to to get started. (laughs) Yeah, you want want to talk about farming or what do you you want to talk about? We can can talk about a lot of stuff. Yeah, I would love to talk about farming. That sounds fantastic. Obviously, from my intro, you can tell that uh, that piques my interest. But... um, you know, to start, it's it's always so great to hear how um, you, as a as a your Point Loma alum, 05, and then working on campus, or well, you know, on the edge of campus at First Church for eleven years. Yeah. Um, what what brought you there? What brought you to Point Loma? And then, um, yeah, talk a little bit about all that that you've been doing since. Yeah, I I followed a girl to Point Loma. So in high school, I was dating oh, someone no. older than me. Yeah. And she chose Point Loma, and I'm so glad that she did. I feel I I, I applied to schools uh, all over the country, uh, always with my mindset on coming to Point Loma. And then I visited, and I absolutely fell in love with the campus. And so, um, you know how when you when you when you get to Point Loma the first time, you kind of just know. At least all of yeah. us that have been right, you just know, and you go, yeah. "Oh, why would I go anywhere else?" So yeah, freshman year I got put in Young Hall, and then my first class was you know they stick freshmen at seven a.m. World Civ two classes right, but our our uh, classroom had a, a ocean view, so I just sat and looked at the ocean and went, "Yep, I'm home. <laughs> this is it." So I uh, chose media and ministry because uh, the people who had had the biggest impact on my life uh, to that point were my my youth pastors and youth staff. So I showed up and was ready to do a youth ministry minor at Point Loma, and they didn't have it. That was explained to me that you could do a ministry degree if you wanted to be a worship leader, which I have absolutely zero musical skills, uh, or a senior pastor, of which I had no interest in doing. So I remember this being like, this is a big moment in my life. I got out of line uh, in Cunningham, read every single major and minor that Point Loma had to offer, and then got back in line and confidently declared that I would do media communication with a production emphasis um, so, and a minor. You felt good. Ministry. You felt good yeah, about that. I loved it. Yeah. And I never yeah. changed it. I absolutely loved it. I love the, 
doing the radio, the newspaper, creative writing. And then the class that really got me was video production. I absolutely fell in love with storytelling. So I had convinced myself by the end of my Point Loma um, four years that I would move to LA and just be a Christ-focused, loving human being who'd work in the film industry, not making Christian movies at all, just going and, and working in film. And over the course of being a student, I started volunteering and then internship had an internship at the youth group on the corner of campus there at First Church of the Nazarene. And did it was you, great. Wh- while you were here, did you um, did you make any films while you were a student that are worth uh, telling? Any yeah. experiences there? <laughs> yeah, we made a lot. We made a lot of films. It was fun. That was right at the. Be- it sounds super old now, but it was right at the beginning of YouTube. You know, so we were excited that. Um, Jackass was a TV show and people were doing crazy <laughs> stunts. So all the guys in Young Hall, we made we made a feature film called The Big Medium that came out our senior year. And we we sold out, we sold tickets and sold that. out the rec room and had a fun like red carpet dress up night with everybody. And then, yeah, a ton of short films. And I got to be a part of like the Isle Nevis, which was a pirate film that got made on campus. Pirates of the Caribbean had just come out. Everybody was so excited. So <laughs> all the guys uh, in Young and Hendrix like got done up, dressed like pirates and went around San Diego and made a pirate film. Um, yeah, that's so I, that's, I, I definitely uh, made, <laughs> yeah. got to be a part of some cool projects. Shortly after that, uh, there was this like army of, um, because pirates were big. And then there was this army of ninjas that that I think right after you left that kind of grew in Young Hall. And then uh, Blake Nelson, Dean Nelson's son, he he saw that army of ninjas and was like, I'm making a film with them and grabbed, grabbed that army and made some ninja film out of them. Blake is great. Blake was in high school uh, and when we were making Al Nevis and he would come and hang out on set. And so, yeah, oh, Blake's nice. decision to not go to NYU film school and come to Point Loma uh, mildly influenced by our decision to run around like pirates. So, yeah, <laughs> no matter awesome. what you're doing and how insignificant it is, it's going to change somebody's life in yeah. some way. So, so yeah, you headed, stayed. yeah, I, you said you headed to First Church. Um, I, I want to hear how that opportunity even came up. But did you did you take any additional theology classes or anything while you're Point Loma, or was it just your your uh, prereqs and that was enough to get you interested? Oh no, in, I did a youth aspect. ministry minor, and so that oh, that right. caused me to take youth and contemporary culture, intro to youth ministry, and a couple extra theology classes, which were great. I'm so glad that I did. And I felt like right when I got into pastoring, I realized how underqualified I felt. And so mm-hmm. there's very much this, it's all relational. I mean, a big part of it is being a, an ever-loving and consistent present in the, presence in the life of a team that's willing to like sit in the mystery and the gray and answer tough questions and then, and then sometimes say, I don't know. And I think that's maybe the for all of us, the most powerful thing we could be doing in, in life and in friendship and in ministry. And then I just realized, oh, I need to know more about the Bible. So I slowly mm-hmm. started a, a master's of spiritual formation at Northwest Nazarene University online. That was before Point Loma was doing any online uh, continuing education stuff. And then expanded it to a full MDiv and finished an MDiv. So while, so while that, I was there, yeah, I got, you did that all while you were, you while I was working full time. Yeah. I would just, yeah. I just do my job and then have a life. And then from like midnight to 2 a.m. every night, do school. And I did that for six or seven years. Hmm. Um, what were you thinking about? I mean, you, I remember when you were youth minister there and it seemed like you loved it. You were doing a lot. You were making new programming that they'd never seen. You were you were doing programming, even regionally, regional programming for all of the Southwest and beyond. Um, it was. A, it seemed like you were doing a lot, and I know you're always doing a lot, but was that a time when Sabbath started be, to become something that you were wrestling or thinking about, or were you just going a million miles an hour? Yeah, no, I, you, you burn out. I mean, I feel like, well, Richard Rohr says you, the only way you come to God is by doing it wrong, and I feel like mm. that's a great, 
I, that's every lesson. I mean, I feel like even for people listening to this today, I'm, I'm so excited that you're engaging this content and listening to this. But my only hope for you is that you would be, that we do have the tools to realize that when you're drowning, you have something to reach out to and hold on to, right? That there's steady ground, that there's a floaty, there's something available to you. And so it's not like you're going to like build your life around these principles until this area of your life is falling apart. You realize you have a problem and then you go, oh, I have a community that can help inform how I move forward, right? Mm -hmm. So for... For me, it was just like, yeah, I was, I was doing too much. I was, I'm, a, I'm a high capacity person. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I'm an enthusiast. I'm always going to act. I'm an activator on the on the strengths quest. So I'm always going to be doing a new thing, excited about a new thing. And I just get to the point where I take on too much. And so I started to burn out and realize, well, if you're going to have a sustainable career, especially in ministry, where it's not a nine to five, you cannot punch out, you don't clock out, you get calls in the middle of the night to go pick up teens from compromising situations, and you're in tough family situations, and then you're still expected to do a regular nine to five, all the work during the day, you know, ministry is just tough. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough gig. Yeah. And so I realized, oh man, I need to, to set some boundaries. I and if only if only our tradition had something to say, like the fourth <laughs> of the Ten Commandments was the longest commandment was specifically about this. It's you are not meant to be chewed through or chewed up or used up like the consumer producer consumer cycle yeah. teaches you or tells you that you need to be. So I think this is one of the areas where our our church life structure is being radically formed and shaped by. The, especially American, and you know, you you read that great intro. Um, just our industrialized nation and our idea of what it means to have value and to produce. Yeah. And so I, I Sa- couldn't figure out. Yeah. I don't know when it happened. I, I I was interviewed about Sabbath for the viewpoint. I don't even know when that was. I'm sure <laughs> we could find it. Probably like 2007. So I've been really thinking, or 2008. I've been really thinking about this deeply for a long time. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So yeah, it goes all the way back to then. Yeah, it's interesting you, you put it that way, even thinking about it now. I worked for a church briefly and I've obviously been to a lot of churches in all the places I've lived, but it, yeah, sitting here thinking about it now that way, it almost feels like, man, of, of all the places I probably witness overwork, overburden, lack of boundaries, most might be, even in all the corporate settings I've been in, might be church, might be modern American church. Yeah, we don't, we don't we're not good at boundaries. We feel like no is sinful. Um, we feel like we should be able to do it all. And we also, also I, I, this is something I'm working through in therapy right now. There's one thing, if you get nothing else from this, uh, this podcast, go to therapy, go do five to six Amen. sessions of therapy at least before you decide you don't like your therapist. I mean, unless it's like an abusive or harmful relationship, but like ride through it and figure out, um, how you can start to work through your stuff because at whatever season of life you're in, I don't, you're 55 or 60. Great. You got stuff that you need to figure out and work through. So in therapy, I've been figuring out that one of the neg- I have lots of benefits of growing up in the church for me and the path that it pointed me to. One of the huge negatives is by setting Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ, by setting the example of this human Jesus who was perfect, right? That were all the time, like sinless, perfect, whatever. It set me up for constant failure because I'm never going to be perfect. My body doesn't allow it. My brain doesn't allow it. I'm going to run out of energy and I could give and give and give and give. And at the end of the day, it was never going to be enough. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have misframed. We, have, we need to reframe what it means to be faithful um, or to be sacrificed at the altar or to pick up our cross, whatever, you know, these things that we, we use these scriptures. And instead of them being freeing, as many of them were intended to be, they become another new law or a shackle that holds us down. And therefore, we have, we, have, we feel guilty if we don't answer our phone or turn our phone off 
um, to take a true Sabbath. So we're breaking our own commandment to try and fulfill the law of love, which was supposed to reframe the commandment. You see this like <laughs> yeah, cyclone we've got in our, yeah, the rabbit, the rabbit hole. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was, that was your time at first church, things you were wrestling with in 2008. How, how'd you take it from there? Uh, so then concluded ministry. Well, I really liked my, my decade of ministry at first church. It was fantastic. And then, and got married to another Point Loma alum and Sophie's incredible and got into a master's program in Atlanta for divinity. So we moved and, um, the move was great for me. I went from being a medium-sized fish in a small pond at Point Loma, right? Small pond, a lot of people know you. And if you stay there for years, you end up being a lot of people's lifelines are just a part of a community. It's great. All the great things about being in the fabric of a community are great. Except that in the last year or two of of our time in San Diego, every single night was was busy. I mean, if a community group, a Bible study, a Tuesday night youth group, a Wednesday night youth group, you're going to have any sort of friend group. And then graduations, birthday parties, concerts, like you just, your life is full. And I'm a person who's outgoing and, and love doing stuff. But I got to the point where the last couple of years, I told my wife, like, you need to go without me if that's okay, because I just don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Atlanta was fantastic because I didn't know anybody. And I got introduced to people as Sophie's husband, and it was fantastic, <laughs> right? That's it was awesome. just great. And so I spent my year, uh, my first year in Atlanta, going to a different church every week. And huh. I went I went from being the person who is on, right? So if you're a, a pastor, you're on on Sunday. You've got to like be there early. You're setting up. If something goes wrong, I'm the person who when the sound goes wrong, I'm, I'm the one who gets up and runs around and tries to solve the problem, right? Yes. And yes. when you enter a worshiping congregation in another state where – it's a different culture, different denomination, different skin color, different background, different tradition. I was just fish out of water for a year. It was so good because what it did, the, the summary thesis would be it expanded what God was to me. I did mm. not realize how much I had made God into what we were doing on our Sunday in our building. And God yeah. is way bigger and way different and way more diverse than I was making yeah. God out to be. And so it really like broke my my my, my need to be important. Like all these churches were going to happen and all these congregations were gathering and they were all following love, whether or not I showed up or not. Whether you were there or not. Yeah. Yeah. Those churches had been there for a hundred plus years doing what they were doing before I was born and they're going to be there after I'm dead. And it was, it gave context. It gave like a zoom out context to it. So for me, again, there you go. I'm no longer valuing myself as the key important thing. We don't do this like consciously, but our actions would say that we have a lack of trust of God to be God because I need to be God in order for God to be God in the world. Yeah, and it caused you in that moment, you, you would come to a place where you developed a, a rhythm of worshiping the worship experience or worshiping the worshiping the church almost. That was the thing that, that had your attention. Yeah, well, I, I would tell it. you that I feel like the church Sunday mornings have become a sacred cow. I mean, yeah. I, I, I would work with other pastors who had like, they had to leave. We were doing youth, you know, camp, right? And a camp would cross over to Sunday morning and we'd have like, senior pastors leave this huge, amazing camp experience with their junior hires and all this good work is being done. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to drive back down the hill for Sunday morning. And I'm like, can you not miss one Sunday morning? Like what, yeah. what, what idol have you made yourself at this church where the world collapses at your church? If you are, are doing ministry somewhere else, if you're, if you're right. here somewhere else on that same day, at that same time, you're not in this building. So uh, I'm just, by the end of our time there, I was really excited to uh, have those systems and structures, at least in my own soul, break a little bit. What was, I do want to ask, because we're, you know, we've got students here, as you know, leave Point Loma and a lot of them go out and the the ecclesial question is looms large or goes away, you know, like 
do I go to church? Where do I go to church? You went to Atlanta and chose to go check out churches. Can you say why? Was your intention that you were going to try to find God in different places, or you just really wanted to be unknown every single week? What was the, did you remember if you had an intention there? Yeah, I think it was to expand. Like my my hope was to maybe not rescue. First church was great. I mean, it's great. But um, being responsible for church, you'd see the ugly side because people are people, right? Yeah. I mean, you're just going to get the, 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 the rough, yeah, all, all the time. You, you catch it. Yeah. And um, I kind of wanted to be re-encouraged on that this was worth it, that the body of yeah. Christ was was doing a good thing. Um and to not be important. I just, I, I definitely, one thing that I will always struggle with is my ego and, and needing to be seen and wanting to be wanted. And I think it's, it's really healthy for me. And I knew it. Maybe I couldn't have articulated that at the time, but I knew that it was important to not be needed and to not be important for a season. Okay. And so I worked really hard. For three years, I, I founded a, a film company, People People Media, and I made movies in Atlanta. I just worked by myself every day, really hard, watched a lot of movies. Um, and learned all the tough lessons that I, I probably could have learned if I would have gone to film school, and I just did it on my own. And then at the time of, and then at the same time, I was still traveling and speaking at camps and retreats and stuff. And by the end of our time in Atlanta, um, we had a couple options for jobs, and um, one of them was to come help expand a young adult intentional community here in the Bay Area. And so with Point Loma alum Jeffrey Perganian, who was 04, I believe, uh, had pioneered this uh, church shutting down, selling their building, reinvesting their assets on the NorCal district uh, in the South Bay, San Francisco Bay Area to help young adults, like right out of Point Loma, a lot of them were, transition into what the rest of your life is going to be. Because you realize when you graduate, oh my gosh, at some point, all of these decisions have been made for me. Who am I? What am I? Am I going to use my major or not? And what do I actually want to do with my life? And so we had people from like 22 to 32 who would come live for two years as a transitional figure out what you're going to do. And so we would give them free rent or way below market rent uh, to live free rent to live in the Bay Area, which is astronomical and how much it costs, and then expect them to give back and volunteer 10, 15 hours a week uh, at local ministries or invent your own. So we had people do all um, kinds of fun, innovative, different. Some people did traditional ministry, but a lot of people didn't. And um it was great. And over the course of that first two years of that program, we expanded it into now we own 95 acres in south of Oakland, like 20 minutes south of Oakland. And we have a farm with uh, orchards, gardens, sheep, goats, chickens. And we run an intentional Christian community where at any time eight to 12 people are living in a communal house and we live together, we eat together um, we gather on Sunday mornings for brunch church, a simple liturgy, read a scripture and have a conversation around a table. And then we serve our neighbors and our focus is our hospitality, creativity, and sustainability. So we're hoping to be a credible witness to the love of God by actually caring about the land, by caring about animals, by caring about sustainability. We're working on getting rainwater collection and composting and um, just actually engaging practically every day with what it means to be a, a, a zero. No, we're not zero waste yet. We would love to be zero waste, but on our way to caring about the earth and waste. And then hospitality is the best thing you can do is open your life and your heart and your home to people. So we want to be a way station for people to come through that are this. We'll get to burned out and Sabbath, right? People are burned out. So if we can be a place where a burned out person can unplug, can turn off their tech and to put their fingers in the dirt, can eat vegetables from our garden to play with an animal to swim in the pool to hike the hill 
and to reconnect with nature would be the most hospitable thing we can do or can offer our neighbors right now. And then creativity, that's me. That's my life and, and the way I learn from God and um, express worship would be uh, by telling stories in all kinds of forms and fashions. And so my company is reforming to be the People People Media Foundation with the hope to empower a diverse group of artists to come make art within community. So hosting yeah. artists for three days, you know, 10 days, three weeks, three months uh, here on the land where they can pay to stay. And then we help them uh, remove the hurdles and barriers so that they can make their art. Uh, I'm really excited about that. So, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a lot of things that you're doing, but they all... You know, you're talking about a, a downward spiral. They call in some sort of hopefully virtuous cycle, support each other, right. push each other. It sounds like maybe the hope there is then you can have healthy rhythms. Um, but it's still a lot of things. Can you talk about what's that been like at doing all the things while the, if the intention is, sab- is also Sabbath, how have you done with that, with doing all the things, but also learning Sabbath? Yeah, I think it's really tough, especially when you live at work. I mean, for you, you get to go to work and then you get to go home. And so we'll talk about the connectivity of having email on your phone and, you know, Instagram on your phone and being called at any hour when something's going wrong. But we, I live at work. So I think there's this, there's this constant, I can see out my front window when someone shows up and they look lost standing at the farm stand and I'm, I need to go interact with them or, and, or. Can we build systems so that when I'm off the clock, either in the evening or uh, on a weekend or on my Sabbath on a Friday, um, where it's self-explanatory, where there's a sign, where our staff email has a reply that says, if you email us, we're not going to check our email on Friday because we do a tech Sabbath or we're trying to. This is the thing. It's We're not perfect, but we're always trying. We're trying to figure it out. And if you email us on the weekends, we're not going to answer it. We'll, t- we'll get back to it on Monday or Tuesday. And to stop treating email or text like they're this immediate thing that is a weight on your shoulders that you have to reply to and to say, call me. If you need me, call me. And if my phone's off, sorry, you can get me tomorrow. And that is something that used to be normal. And I think that we would like to to be prophetic, not in prophecy in the way that we think about it falsely sometimes, that like the prophets of the Bible were seeing the future and predicting the future, but more uh, the prophets are seeing the current day clearly. Yeah, that it's, they are tr- outs- it's about truth right. more than it's about future. And the future is, it's both, but yeah, because tr- something is true is true tomorrow, and so right. it gets, sometimes feels like it's about just future. But so our resistance of, of email is not just because we don't have the capacity to email. It's us saying like, "Oh, this is bad for us. This is bad for our society. This is bad for my back, my spine. This is bad for my soul." I don't like the dopamine hits. I mean, I like the dopamine hits that I get when I see new email, and that is a bad cycle to be in where I am an ant- lab rat that's trained to salivate over needing yeah. to get email. I mean, yeah. that's just not, that's not who I want to be. That's not, that's not who I think we're supposed to be. And yeah. so our engagement of these systems hopefully allow for a better way, a different way for, for people who come touch base with us to see that, oh, a different way is possible and it's normal and it's good. Maybe it's capital G gospel good. Yeah. So it sounds like that a huge piece of what it has meant to have healthy, restful rhythms in still doing so much good work. Cause I know you're not, you're not one to to leave anything on the table if you can help it, but how can you do that while being healthy? It sounds like huge piece has been um, minimizing the, the, I don't know what you want to call it, the tech burden for yourself, but how did you get there? How did you identify that? That's, I mean, that's the meat of what I'd love to talk about today is your experience with coming to that with technology. Hmm, That's a good one. I think, well, it's a long story, so we'll we'll condense it way down here. 
Um, in 2009, I was at Sundance uh, and saw a film called We Live in Public. And it was a prophetic movie. It was a guy who is a performance artist and early adapter, adopter, early adopter of the internet and was responsible for creating some of the first like chat TV stuff. And it was following him. This is before, this is before Instagram. Instagram did exist. That's a 2010, late 2010 thing. So um, it was as Facebook was still needing a college invite, right? So it was still, he's on the cusp of this, this constant connectivity thing, pre-smartphone. And he just fully extrapolated out a world where our desire to be seen was going to entrap, we were going to entrap ourselves by our desire to have everybody see everything that we do. And nah, it that's crazy. It, it was awesome. I, I recommend it. It's called We Live in Public. You can stream it. That's crazy. Um, that's so unbelievable. It's, it's wild. And we, re- so, so, I mean, we'll fast forward all the way. My group here with the artists and our, our residents, I kind of did a, a miniature a modified TED Talk book report where I had everybody watch uh, The Social Dilemma, right? That's new and is worth watching on Netflix about our addiction to social media and what bummer media is doing to us. I'll explain bummer media in a second. Um, Fake Famous, a documentary that's on HBO that follows three people who are trying to use Instagram to get famous. And it's a really interesting, easy-to-watch character study. And we live in public. So I had our people, if they wanted to, watch all three of these movies. And then I gave a 45-minute book summary on this book. It's by Jaron Lanier. And it's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. <laughs> That's the name of the book. That's Great title. Awesome. And he, if you've seen The Social Dilemma, because it was popular, he's the guy, uh, probably like mid-40s, early 50s, with uh, big white dreadlocks, right? And oh, uh, yeah. he's kind of kind of eccentric, looks like a character that could have been out of a Star Wars movie. Yeah, your first something. instinct was, who is this well, nut job they brought right. on here? And yeah, then yeah, as yeah. it goes on, you're like, this guy he's has on figured it. some things out. <laughs> Dude, when he starts talking, you just, I got goosebumps just now. You go, oh, you're on it. You've got your fingers on the pulse of what's happening. And you, he's been in tech for a long time. So he's yeah. seen the way things are changing. And then when you're on the inside of some of these systems. So uh, I'm, I'm in media. So I was at Sundance um, listening to Coca-Cola, which is, I'll just say it, is an, is an F company. They're a completely immoral company. Okay, so they- it's good. Danielle they, works uh, for Pepsi. So they, that's, they, yeah, I've seen that yeah, all day. They, yeah, so- <laughs> Pepsi's a little better, but not much better. Right, so, sure, we'll edit that out. Yeah, great. So, um, so they they were talking. Uh, they were using church language in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. The brand of mm. how to create community to sell their products, right? And so, when you have this church language and realize, oh, they're using the language that we know to be about how God has created us to be, and are going to use it to sell us things by convincing us that their brand has our best interest in mind and will create genuine, true community, which is BS. That's garbage. That's just specifically to increase profitability every quarter, right? And they would say that too in these meetings because they're talking to us content creators because they wanted us to be making their content because we are at Sundance. We, the the community, is the best filmmakers in the world. So I'm sitting in a room where they're trying to recruit people and pay them well, high six figures, to to use their gifts. Yeah, to, to, to increase sales. So, Jaron, so this book, let me let me see how yes. I can give you some of this book, and yes. then you just keep relating it back to stuff okay. that, that matters to this thing. So, um, We Live in Public, like, throws out all these amazing things, basically showing about what humans will do to be seen. And I'll give you the, the thesis summary of this book, uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. The thesis of this book is that the internet is not bad. Technology can do a lot of good but it's a lie that we need bummer media to be connected. Mm. And so bummer media, he defines it as any company that is, I want to read his description. Bummer media is media that uses data collection to sell behavior modification. I'll say it again. Bummer media is media that uses data collection 
to sell behavior modification. You've heard it said that if you're not paying for a product, then you are the product, right? So we can hear that and go, yeah, but I like Instagram. Well, he says that Facebook, which Facebook owns Instagram, Facebook and Google are the worst. So Google, your email, they're reading your emails, they're reading your Google calendars, they are scanning that and they're selling ads based on it back to you, behavior modification. And you're like, well, why is that bad? Ads are fine. Ads are a part of life. They're going to always be a part of life. Well, the ads that are happening now are not the same as they were back in early TV and radio because you were in control. The TV was showing commercials and they didn't know who was watching the commercials. They didn't know you. They weren't filming you. They didn't know what your eyes were doing during the commercials. And you could turn off the commercial. You could change the channel. Yeah, they were going off viewership data that said like, well, you have the best chance of hitting this audience at this point, but that might be because it's 20% of the audience, not everyone. Yeah, that's like Mad Men, right? That's what they were doing where they were saying, well, yeah, right. This group is doing this and housewives are buying this, right? Like that. that's basically what they had. They were like, if the people watching this show at two o'clock are these people, well, we'll we'll shoot in the dark, right? uh, It was the best guess. Very broad. But A behaviorist is a scientist studying new, more methodical, sterile, and nerdy ways to modify the actions of human beings and animals. So the key to successful results is training someone while the person doesn't know it. So Jaron says, and this is a quote from page eight, he says, pervasive surveillance and constant subtle manipulation is unethical, it's cruel, it's dangerous, it's inhumane. It's dangerous because you don't know who's going to use that power and what they're going to do with it, right? So he's basically saying there is an unknown hand that's using media and we are giving over ourselves and instead of like me and you right now we're talking human to human bummer media takes our interactions and runs it through an unknown third party whose goal it is is to make money based on our interactions and steer us to making more money for them right so mm-hmm. his, his second point was bummer media is creepy like yeah. bummer media gives cre- the creepier the customer they're more bang for their buck because it amplifies weird and nasty and it, it amplifies virality. So virality is the new currency, not depth and substance. So we as Christians yeah, don't hu- humanity this. isn't even humanity isn't even necessarily a part of it because it yes it goes through the third party, but the 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 product or the function of the third party is to design the algorithm that does it for them. And so it's 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 a machine, and so it doesn't care that that yeah, like you said, it can get it can twist things nastier and weirder, stranger, less human, very you know as quickly as we let it. Because right. there's not necessarily a lot of human mediation there. Well, and that's and that's his point is it's not the, the people who were inventing this stuff, as you'll see in like the social dilemma, they were not evil. I, it would be easier to believe that there's someone wearing a black jacket and a black uh, fedora making really decisions to hurt people. He's like, that's not what happened. But now it's out of hand. And these companies, the way they're structured, will never go back. And they are doing evil things because the algorithm spreads fast, it's designed to spread sticky and fast. And it spreads the stickiest and the fastest with negativity. So his next point is social media is making you an a-hole. And it's doing that because it's working. So the fact that you feel worse, the fact that your inner troll comes out, the fact that you are tribalism and that you are attacking people and that you're triggered and and angsty. Um, I posted something this week where someone who's like, a friend of an acquaintance, like I don't know this person, I've never met this person, replied with a paragraph long troll of something I posted that I thought was like fairly mundane. And it like physically affected my body. Mm-hmm. It made my stomach hurt. It made my neck hurt. My, my shoulders got tight. My hands covered my guts. It's like a biological like fight or flight mode. And it like, it shook me for, 
a couple hours. I like went into a physical response to this person and I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what their day looked like. I don't know how this topic is like enfleshed in the rest of their life, but I'll tell you what their response to me. And I even think we were on the same quote, like side of the argument. I think we like kind of agreed, but, but based on what they assumed I was saying, because our interaction went through this, this algorithm, uh, it got condensed, shortened and bumper stickerized to where they thought I was in a different tribe and like shredded me. And it was, it was, it was rough. So, yeah. which is his next point. Bummer removes the value of your voice. So conversation for all of human history has existed within context, right? You could see a face, you could get a tone and a pace and a facial changes and a body posture. And we were talking on a specific date and a specific time in the midst of a specific culture. And when you say things online, all of that is removed. It can get said in a different place, on a different time, in a different context, in the midst of a scroll used by an algorithm who's trying to infuriate someone. Um, he goes into a deep dive of the, the election cycle 2016 and Black Lives Matter and uh, how white supremacist groups rising and how the Facebook algorithms, because it's sticky, they would show each other groups with the opposing viewpoints of your viewpoint to inflame and catalyze groups together. Uh, it's just like absolutely terrifying because he wrote the book came out before some of that stuff really exploded too. Yeah. So, and, and we and know of some of that stuff is stuff that that um, that you know nation state enemies of the United States are exploiting. Like that's where China, oh. Russia, these entities. That's exactly you know when they say like messing with our elections, that's what they're doing. They're using <laughs> that exact technology, if you want to call it that, right. to take advantage. This is where, I mean, I just want to tie it right back in. So what does it matter for you to unplug? How does that affect the system? I think true change doesn't come just through policies, but policies change because people change, right? Mm, because yes. people are, are tapping into something that's true or different or a system becomes at a breaking point and then we have revolution or rebellion or change, right? Widespread change. Yeah. Um, I think for this, that's why it's so important and why Sabbath is a rebellious, necessary act is it is a direct rebellion against consumerism and about you being a product and about you being stuck in a consume, produce, consume, produce vortex. Yeah. So when you turn off your phone, when you delete an app from your phone, when you put your phone in your other room, and could you imagine going for 24 hours without looking at your email or your phone, you are making a choice towards healthiness, happiness, fulfillment, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Self-control. The, the, our, our capacity for empathy is, he says, is completely been eroded because empathy is like, empathy comes from the theory of mind, which is where you're able to build a story in your head about what's going on in someone else's head or life. So the, the core to any sense of respect or empathy, it's a prerequisite to be able to have intelligent cooperation or civility at all because you need to be able to understand, even if you don't agree, you need to be able to understand where someone's coming from. But with Bummer Media, we now literally are existing in different worlds because our each world, our online world, is so curated to our own brand, whether self-inflicted or being inflicted on us, that I can't even comprehend how someone could believe what they believe. And when I remove myself consciously from those systems for even a day to catch my breath, I see humans' faces. I can see trees. I can breathe air, I can eat food, I can have uh, a physical connection with human beings, and I can be reminded that the things that are uniting us rather than tearing us apart, it literally helps restore our ability 
to be empathetic creatures. And if you're in any way going to try and follow a love God and love your neighbors as yourself, in order to be able to love your neighbors as yourself, all neighbors, you have to have empathy. It's like a number one, yeah, number one qualification. Yeah. 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 That it, it, um, it reminds me of, um, of Huxley most, right? Brave New World, like it's mm. something like the Soma. It's like just, if you just stop taking the Soma, you know, I mean, that's the thing that gives you the hit and keeps you in that world and keeps you thinking you need all this like world, this this world that you're actually living in experientially is one of of comfort. I mean, it doesn't, you don't think about it that way, but it's it's giving you sensations of, of comfort, um, you know, in this escapist world. And that's, it, it feels like, yeah, I mean, it's a risk, right? Like you stop taking the soma, you 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 you, you turn off the thing. It, sorry, it feels like a risk because you're so in it, um, but it's actually what opens you up to to being your most human. It's it's literally like it's almost what I'm hearing you say is like it's literally suppressing you being your most fully human. Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean we've, in a, in a gospel wild, sense at least we've wildly summarized this this 200 page book that I, it's small <laughs> and it's wonderful and you should read it. But that's I think he would agree. His last point was social media hates your soul. And he's not like an overtly at all, maybe religious person. He's just saying the goal of Bummer Media is to give you a new spiritual framework. The goal is to take, which we know the world should be gray and full of nuance and dis- discussion. And like, that's literally, we worship a God that claims to be the Trinity. It's literally a paraclesis. It's a dance. It's a divine dance. It's a movement that the the theology of in the time that Jesus was a rabbi, that it wasn't just the black and white letter of the law, but the, the rabbis would stand on the synagogue steps and argue. And that that midrash, that argument that the, the juice was in the disagreement and you would leave saying like, our rabbi says this and this rabbi said this. And that like the dialogue and space in between was the good stuff. Right. And that right. inherently literally meme culture, right? Like has, has led us down to virality value, bumper sticker theology, lack of nuance. And so he, his conclusion is for him, that he will not be on Facebook, Google, or Twitter until there are platforms that he can pay for. Because if you pay for it, like you would be paying for a Netflix or an right. HBO, right. by taking out the unknown third party, you're paying directly to Netflix and HBO. And therefore, to over, to kind of like way overuse the word, you have a relationship with them in that you're paying them to give you, curated to you what they think you yeah. will watch. They still want you to watch 10 hours a day. Yeah. But, but you have the choice because they're not being steered by an unknown black hand they are trying to get you to watch yeah. content that you you're are also the, paying to watch. You're the customer. Right. You're the revenue stream, so they, they need you to... to yeah. yeah, they want and they want you to be happy. They want you right. to keep watching things. They're going to keep launching new shows. Netflix is doing 17 or 18 billion with a B, billion dollars of new content next year because they want your time, right? So your eyeballs are the commodity, but your actions, they're not trying to get you to buy an extra thing yet, right? Right. So... Jaren's thing is, you would think that he's trying to get you to quit social media forever. He says, no, I realize, I realize that human connection uh, is largely based on uh, the internet right now. I would offer you up, like, what, so what do we do today, Scott? What do me and you do? What do the listeners yeah. do? How do we respond? His challenge is pretty extreme. But if one person listening to this is awakening to like, yes, this is true. It's making me an a-hole. I'm unhappy. I'm depressed. You're, can I say, A, you're not alone. I work with young people and like we have a couple of peeling you grads that are, are one year out, right? Mm-hmm. This is the most unhappy, sad, depressed, anxious group of human beings I've ever seen. And I've worked with young people for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and you're the first group, you're the group that's coming up that had uh, social media in junior high. And I can I just apologize to you for that? 
I'm so sorry that you had to do how hard you and I know Scott, how hard junior high could be and what it's like for me to be a, a scrawny pimple faced kid. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine the trauma, the long-term trauma of having to do that with the gossip being online with what people think of my photos, who likes what, who DMs what, the pressure of nudes and just the whole thing. It's like F that, right? So I'm sorry that if you're listening to this and you're appealing to student, that that was your experience. Yeah. Like that, that's rough. And there are things to process in that, even yeah. though the good, I'm sure there's some good, but Jared there's, would say. Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's a, uh, I just had a conversation with a, um, a family member who's a, who's a baby boomer. And he was talking about how, about hardship and how like student, you know, young people these days, they, they haven't been exposed to, to hardship. Cool. And I was, well, it, and, and I understood right. his, pers- from his, he doesn't interact with young people, so he doesn't uh, really yeah. know. And so, so yeah. I, I understood what he was saying and, and I get it. And I was sitting with someone who's also like, I work in higher ed, she's a higher ed um, psychologist. And, um, and we both were like, okay, that's like, I get why you think that. And you're not wrong in the sense that the, the hardship, like, you're, what you're not wrong about is the resilience piece because the hardship produces the resilience, right? And right. so we were like, no, these students have gone through hardship because you have no, we started describing to him, do you have any idea? Like, I know you're on Facebook, but but do you have any idea what it's like for these students coming up on Instagram and on Snapchat yeah. and the kinds of crazy, cra- I mean, crazy yeah. brain things that these students have do to with each other and how that platform has pushed them to experience a level of emotional hardship and social hardship that is beyond anything you can understand, and you're right in the sense that it's a type of hardship that produces no resilience. It's an empty right. hardship that does not build character. It just leaves you more and more empty. Oh, that was really well said. That's really well said. Because I think you could, you could without swoop, broad sweeping generalizations totally. of anybody, I will never do that. Totally. But you could have a conversation about grit or perseverance or gumption or what it means to, to like, they rightly, because I, I feel it too, crumble when these attacks happen and then it's our productivity or ability to function healthily has just like been cut out at the knees, right? It's just really brutal and a really unique and a thing that no human over the last however many millions and or hundreds of thousands of years uh, has experienced in any way. We haven't experienced anything like this. Like the people who are using Facebook, my mom, 65, is using Facebook very differently than people are using TikTok or Instagram. That demographic is almost like... I, I almost have more, I don't want to say more sorry for them, but I guess what I'm getting at is exactly what you're saying. You've got this recent group of grads you're interacting with who feel like, man, they like, I don't want to say hopeless, but it's pretty bad. And, yeah. But then they're looking at the next gen and those are the students I'm working with right now. And I actually like, so I see this group that's who we're talking about, who you just apologized to coming up through junior high. Uh, right. But they're also, as they get into the college experience and seeing that it's not changing, I thought things were supposed to be getting, like we were supposed to be getting more mature. They're noticing and they're self-identifying and they're watching something like Social Dilemma. And and they're actually, I feel like with the least of students I see that gives me hope is they self-identified enough that they're like, oh yeah, I'm ready. I like, I am open to what could be different and what could be better. So that's where I just want to say that as an encouragement to those students that are listening, like, in my office on the third floor of the commons, when I'm talking to ASB students, I'm talking to those students that want to come to me with their crazy issue. And I, that's what I get. I get the particularly the most most political issues on campus are the ones that come into my office. And I get students who are hair on fire, eyes soaking wet, whatever it is, because they're ramped up because of interactions they've had on social media. And they leave my office actually giving me even more hope that after that conversation, mm. they, like I'm seeing your leaders, your students, and I'm talking to, to Point Loma students who are listening right now, um, being on the cusp, being willing to think about how they could do that differently, 
but it's lonely. It can be lonely to right. self-select that. And so I guess that's an encouragement that what Jared's about to, or what Jared's talking about here about what can be done, you can do that with your, with your friend group, with your, yep. with your um, leadership group, whatever it is. Have an awakening. I just think, I think we're ready for an awakening. So the stories that we consume shape our reality, right? So what are you ingesting and be conscious of that, that on, if you're on Bummer Media, you are not choosing, right? You're mm-hmm. not choosing what's coming at you. Watch The Social Dilemma, watch Fake Famous, realize how how much of it is BS and it's meant to make you feel bad because then you'll buy a product. Um, and if you if you feel those things, it's because Bummer Media is working. It's in, it's, it's meant to do that. It's It's intentionally doing it and it works. So what do you and I do to prevent burnout, That's, uh, turn it off. So yeah. Jaren's, Jaren's thing is, he says, shut it all down for six months. He says it's six months of okay. your life. People existed before it. Shut it all down. Delete Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok for six months and just live your life. And then he says, notice. It's an experiment. Call it an experiment. You can say set a date that you're going back to it at the beginning. That's fine. Just say six months from now. On January 1st, 2022, I will repick it up. But right now, I'm going to go off it all for six months and I'm going to see what it does, hmm. right? That's what he says to do. And then he says, see what it does, learn, and then respond appropriately. Like, see what it did. Are you happier? Are you more content? Because if so, now you have the data on yourself, and then you can make a decision. And if you decide not to, then you know that you're acting not in your best interest, right? Yeah. Um, it's literally this, the exact same logic as the elimination diets. You get yes. rid of the oh. things. It's the exact same. Right. I, right. And that was, I did the full 30. That was, I was like, I don't, not, I thought it was kind of goofy. I was asked to do it. And then when I did it, I was like, Man, I had no idea. It's not just that I had no idea that I had some sensitivities to some of these foods and how much those had been actually wrecking me for years and thinking back like, oh my gosh, that's why I felt that way. But yeah. I've been, now I've experienced it. So as I bring them back, I know like it's that thing that's doing it so that your body has now internalized the experience and knows like it's it's social media, it's me clicking on Instagram that makes me feel that way. And now I Scott, have, so that gives me the tool to not That's do a it. fantastic example. Because yeah. then if you decide now that you're going to eat something with gluten in it, or you're going to eat something with sugar, you know what you it's going to do to your yeah, body, yeah. right? You know what it's going to do to you. So you and just, you can still make that decision. You're just going to say, this right. cupcake or this ice cream would be worth it. I'm going to do this for this. And, I, and you but have about like, 80% at least of the time, you <laughs> say no. You just <laughs> no, don't, you're like, good. no thanks. Right. Yeah. And it's That's easy. also sounds like two really old guys been it, like, oh maybe. man, you know, yeah, ice creams. If I eat ice cream after three o'clock, I'm really going to not sleep well tonight. Yeah. I never thought about until I was like 30 plus. And then I was like, oh man, maybe this stuff, my body can't. Okay. So six, so six months. Let me, let me put something maybe. Yeah. that may, might be if some, if one person does that on this great if you're the person that feels like it's resonating with you then yeah. just go for it find someone who will hold you accountable and like just go for it right your your life will change forever there's another book called 24 6 the power of unplugging one day a week by tiffany schlain i believe is her last name s-h-l-a-i-n and she's a filmmaker she actually founded the webby awards which is funny the webby awards is like when you're in my bio it's i was nominated alongside webby uh, lady gaga and she beat us for an award um, the, the inventor of those awards is Tiffany and she, for the last 10 years or so, um, they're not like religiously Jewish, but they're kind of like practically Jewish okay. in some ways. They have a text Shabbat, uh, a technology Sabbath where Friday night to sundown to Saturday night sundown, her family with her kids, they're 70, their kids are in high school. She and her husband, they're all like, he's, he's in neuroscience or something tech. They, they are connected to these worlds. They're right. They're not Luddites. So this is their world. She is an internet movie maker, storyteller person, and they do 24 hours a day, every week, no technology. They call them analog days. So they do no emails, no cell phones, put them in a box, hide it, leave it. 
It's gone. Yeah. And they have said that routinely, especially during the pandemic, it has been the best part of their being a family. Awesome. Their 17 year olds love it. She ends up like living off it for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, or yeah, Friday during the day. It can't, cannot wait for what she calls being off leash. So she would say that our brains now, and Gmail is built for this, if you watch The Social Dilemma, the colors, the formatting, everything is meant to keep you hooked. The goal is for you to spend your time on there and to want to want to go back and to give you a dopamine hit reward when you do, just like Pavlov's dogs, right? Yeah. But what she's saying is when you're off leash, that's when we're able to be our best selves. That's when we're able to be our most creative because your brain is able to go free and run around and make connections in weird random places. So she yeah. ends up pen to paper doing some of her best creative work on Saturday mornings before everybody wakes up. She's not not working. She's just like not connected to the internet. And so that's why she calls it a tech Sabbath because it's not the same hardcore Shabbat that uh, the Jewish people have been doing and then uh, devote Christians would still participate. Like Seventh-day Adventists are much better at this than we are. But um, I'm all about it. I'm all about it and have been better at some seasons of my life than others. Sophie, my partner, and I are, are often discussing and figuring out what it means to be on Sabbath. Our child that we have, a two-year-old, doesn't uh, have child care on Fridays. And so it's a great force for us to be around the farm or play with the animals or go to the zoo or do something with him that allows us to be disconnected. And then the temptation is to be scrolling Instagram on any any moment that you can be. And I would say be bored. All right. That's my that's my other admission to this group, right? My other thing that you can do is be bored. Hmm. Notice the tick, right? You've got your phone in your pocket, you're doing your life. When do you reach for your phone? And can you just mark it? Because for me, I did it. I did this the day I gave this TED Talk seven times during that day. I was going to, I did no Instagram during the day, no social media. And seven times there were little moments, little 90 second blips, little 30 second blips where I, I picked up my phone to look at Instagram. And instead of opening my phone, I put it back in my pocket and looked around the world. Mm. I looked at a tree, caught my breath, watched a bird, looked down at my shoes, like just looked at the world. And it was the best. It was the yeah. best. And I was already trying to figure out now what it means to be a parent and to figure out how to teach my kid that that it's okay to be bored, that, that being bored is the beginning of every discovery. It's the beginning of, it's the beginning of all newness is not being locked or imprisoned or trapped by staring into my phone. So yeah, the beginning of newness. Yeah. That's where, that's where we go from here. I mean, I, I think that is, is, is a, examining, exegeting your life and your community, seeing yourself clearly in a way that you wouldn't be able to see yourself clearly if we're continuing to stare into the black mirror in our pocket. Totally. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jared. I, I think maybe even as a final encouragement to our to those students out there, when uh, you know you, those that are listening, um, when we had this interesting um, TPUSA discussion come up on campus, and your student leaders, your ASB officers, co-wrote a, a letter just outlining you know what what they what their thinking was on that decision. Mm-hmm. Following that meeting, you know that was very intense, um, and a lot of that intensity came up because of things that were happening on social media, you know, behind behind that that uh, screen that, that protects us from actually, you know, being face-to-face with each other. And I asked them, you know, in a hypothetical world, this would never happen, but in a hypothetical world, if part of the covenant, community living covenant on Pointless campus was, okay, it's no sex, no drugs, no, no alcohol. Um, what if it also said no social media? And what if every student on campus had, you know, that was here could could not actually be on social media? And would that would that campus be a better campus or a worse campus? Would PLNU be a better place or a worse place? And I made them really think about it, and they thought about it for a second, and then it was unanimous. They all said better, for sure better. 
And so just know that your even your your elected leaders, those that represent you, they feel that way. They feel that way too. They're experimenting with this stuff. I know I've seen, I know Nash Manker has has done um, tech Sabbaths throughout this year. Um, very proud of him for that. And and it's um it's been good. It's been good for him. So talk to them. It's you're not alone in this. Like Jared's giving you some amazing ideas here um that you should <laughs> I recommend you follow. Um, but you're not alone. Talk to your friends, talk to your student leaders, your RA, your ASB officers. They're in this with you too. And I bet you, I would bet you money they're willing to to go in it with you. Um, so so you know, go together in this. I think the Lord wants to connect with you in deeper and better ways um, once you're once you're your head and your face is out of that stuff. Okay. Well, thanks, Jared. Um, appreciate all of that uh, and how, just how well you, how much you care, how much you care about all of this stuff, and know so or convicted so deeply that it matters and that it will change our yeah. relationship with each other, with the church, with our with our faith communities. You bet. I love people and I, I want I want people to be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I want yeah. people to be able to be healthy, to be able to love themselves and see themselves, to be able to love God, to be able to love each other and the and the love the land. And I think that if we're gonna do that, we need to be able to see ourselves more clearly. Yeah. Agree. Awesome. Well, um, you know, we end up with the rapid fire questions. So real quick, um, what are you reading? I'm reading a book called Why We Sleep, The New Science of Sleep and Dreams. So I, I basically uh-huh. have a whole nother life at night. Every night I go to sleep, I have a whole nother eight hours of life that I live in my dreams. So I'm writing well, a young adult science fiction story about dreams, and this stuff is wild. So there's is- another another thing you got to know is you should be sleeping. Okay. Sleep, sleep, yeah, sleep, sleep eight hours, even if you think, oh, I don't need it. Oh, you need it. And there's there's science to say it. And to is it, that so. lucid dreaming that it's... No, that's my next book. That's on my shelf. Uh, The the guide to lucid dreaming. All right. All right. Cool. Taking it to the next level. Okay. What have you been listening to or watching? I love movies. It's my whole life. So if you're a movie lover, get on Letterboxd. It's an app and hopefully you know about it. Letterboxd with no E at the end. Um, and then you can see in uh, yeah, it's like it letterboxed with like XD. Okay. It's it, you can see in real time what people are watching. It's like a safe social media right now that has not yet been corrupted. But recently, I watched Croupier, which is a movie from 1998 that surprised me was good. I watched Burden of Dreams, which is a documentary about Werner Herzog in 1982 trying to make this epic movie and everything goes wrong. Then I watched Paper Moon, which is from 1973. It's a real classic film that I had never seen, and I've been spending the last couple months trying to catch up and watch a bunch of famous films that I should have seen as a filmmaker, and now I'm I'm catching up and seeing. So nice. Letterboxd, follow me, Jared Cal or Jared Callahan, and we can talk about movies on there. Right on. Um, who made an impact on you this week? Oh, one of our residents, uh, Grace. She lived with us for three years at the farm. She was instrumental in getting us like the goats, the baby goats that live here on the farm. She's great. But she's moving. And um, in her last month here, she spent time weeding and working in the tomato garden, even though she won't benefit from the work she did at all. So I saw her out there. I know that she's busy. She's a therapist. She works super hard at work. Um, she does great stuff and she comes home and she doesn't have spare time. And she was out there on a Saturday working super hard in the sun, weeding the garden. And I just was really convicted and encouraged. It was super challenging me to me. And I realized like that's communal living. You're literally planting seeds that will bear fruit that you will not eat, but for the benefit of the community. And I just like am continually challenged by that. So amen. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, you cannot follow Jared Callahan on any social yeah. media. He'll be not on Instagram, Don't me not yet. on Jared Facebook. Jared underscore at, Cal. Yeah, yeah right. I, yeah. Uh, instead, you know you go, go. The one invite. The one invite would be to come visit. Come yeah, that's visit what I was going to say. We're go on visit a farm, the farm near Oakland. You can go to our website, peoplepeoplemedia.com, and it, uh, read about being an artist in, in residence here. You can come even if you're not an artist. Come, come be on the land. 
get healthy, have good conversations with us and listen to our music and watch our movies and, and hang out. So that's, that's the next season of my life. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Jared. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Point Loma. Awesome.